Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am thrilled to have the fantastic Noel McLaren, MD, and Sunita Singh McLaren on the program. We're going to be talking about their fantastic book, Maximize your metabolism lifelong solutions to lose weight restore energy and prevent disease welcome you lovely people to talk healthy today thank you we're thrilled to be here it's so nice to have you on first of all i loved how you shared in the beginning of the book some personal experiences dr mclaren you talked about being a senior in high school and how you were looking between i think it was geology or medicine and you went towards medicine and you shared this story about this musically gifted woman in her 20s and she was blind and had foot pain. And you said you felt like even though she did what they told her to do, that that they failed her and you wanted to do more. The woman uh, earned a living um, listening, proofing uh, classical music uh, records, boys like classical music. So she's very bright, followed all the instructions, so I thought we'd have, we needed to do better. So I spent the next few decades in research and uh, into why people get type 1 diabetes, and that got me interested in uh, metabolism. Sunita, one of the things that you wrote that I thought was so lovely is people with inborn errors of the metabolism often feel misunderstood. They are unfairly blamed for their excess weight when the root cause is primarily genetic. I thought that was so insightful and so important to talk about because there's so much fat shaming in our culture. If you want to expand on that, and when you when you came to that realization through your work that, wait a second, there's more going on here. Yes, so you would not believe how often in our clinic we have to offer, um, you know, tissues to our patients because they burst into tears. And the reason they burst into tears actually is tears of relief because finally someone's telling them that all these bizarre symptoms you've experienced of unwanted weight gain, depression, poor sleep is all related to genes you inherited from your family. It's not because of your poor lifestyle. So prior to collaborating with Noel, I had spent a number of years working in a, you know, I set up a cultural advisory firm and we looked at prejudice in many forms. And so from that moment on, it's so empowering for people to know that there's something that they can do. And what we found is once they experience a little bit of success, it spills over into every part of their life. If I could just share a quick story with of you. Of course. We were brought to, to this young man came to our clinic and some of our patients attended his synagogue. Now, this young man was 26 years old. 
He weighed over 300 pounds. He had a severe eating disorder and he took very strong medicines for depression. But once he realized that there were things he could do in one year's time, you won't believe the same man, he has a job, he's lost 60 pounds, he's losing more, and more importantly, he's got such a sense of self-belief. He's stopped his depression medication, he loves his work, he, he goes to the gym every day. So it's as much, you know, uh, uh, the idea of liberating people from the mental chains with which we tie ourselves. Absolutely. You know, we hear so much about metabolism. Boost your metabolism. Try cinnamon. Do this. Do that. And you write in the book, quote, your metabolism profoundly affects your energy levels, cognition, moods, body shape, and size. It also plays a major role in your sex hormone sleep, likelihood for muscle pain, and ability to absorb essential nutrients. What is metabolism? Metabolism is the body chemistry that keeps us alive. So it involves uh, all functions. And the list that you read out um, form what we call a metabolic matrix, which is areas where fault occurs. And when identified, the fault can be fixed. So it culminates in then fixing metabolism with all of the benefits in the list of um, problems that you just uh, read out. You know, one way to think about your metabolism is as the underlying technology platform in your body that, that is going to control your cognition, your emotional health, and your physical well-being. And the software code of this technology platform is predominantly the hormone insulin because insulin reacts differently in all the differentiated cells in your body. And one in four people in the world have a lack of sensitivity to insulin. So all their metabolic functions can be affected. And so, you know, if you think about the earlier days when we had apps for sleep, apps for exercise, apps for diet, now all of that in our post-COVID world is being integrated to the underlying platform of the metabolism. But you're so right. It's a very complex concept because in each cell, you have hundreds and thousands of chemical reactions a second. So what we've tried to do is to open that black box and say, here's your unique metabolism and here are ways you can master it. You know, speaking of unique metabolism, I took your quiz and I am Jade and you have jade, sapphire, emerald, and ruby. Uh, go ahead, Sunita, tell us a little bit about each of those. Right. So we believe that the single most determinant of your metabolic health throughout your life is your degree of sensitivity to the hormone insulin. So for jades like you, you're unlikely to have this underlying condition which we call insulin resistance, which means that you've inherited 
this insensitivity. However, even as a jade, there are many things you can do to improve your metabolic health, which we have spelled out. The next personality that we've defined is the sapphire personality. And a sapphire personality is someone who is likely to have insulin resistance, but they are not exhibiting any symptoms of it. The third personality is the emerald personality. Now, this person is showing some symptoms of insulin resistance. It might be weight issues. It might be hair loss. It might be depression. And the final category is the ruby personality, which is someone who now has medical complications. But the very best thing is the extent to which all these symptoms and conditions are reversible. Yeah, that's huge. And that's what you do at your clinic. At our Medicare clinic, we find that convincing majority of our patients who are insulin resistant were born prematurely or had a low birth weight based on their gestational period. So I can um, talk about this easily, I think, because there are babies who are born who can't make insulin. And these babies are born with diabetes and they're tiny. So in other words, a full-term baby with no insulin might be two and a half pounds at birth, not seven and a half. So if we think about then insulin resistance being a genetic disorder, one would expect it to affect growth since it's not growth hormone that gets babies to grow in utero, it's insulin. So if you are uh, insensitive to the effects of insulin, it would be expected that you would be um, smaller at birth. And that's exactly what we uh, find. So it's a pound, pound and a half or so uh, less weight than the gynecologist obstetrician expected. This is very important because you're born with the disorder. So all of the other things that happen, the disorder is permanent. Stuck with it. So it depends on the sort of lifestyle things that you um, adapt. And this is critical, uh, critical to the uh, eventual outcome. So we see that it can occur during any significant changes. So it might be puberty. It might be, you know, when someone changes their diet and goes to college. It might be post after pregnancy, it might be after menopause, but it coincides with significant changes in in the person's either lifestyle or their physiology. You know, one of the things you write in the book too that I thought was so interesting is our multidisciplinary approach involves an investigation of clues both from medicine and human behavior. If one of you could expand on this or both of you, that would be great. Well, I think there's a complex of disorders that result from a defect in insulin uh, metabolism. Now, doctors are great at dealing with diabetes, which is one of the outcomes, but we're not uh, terrific at connecting the dots. For example, you may have a fatty liver, you may have gallstones, you may have gout. One of our uh, patients, for example, is... uh, Japanese lady who's been terrified most of her life because her mother 
and several relatives had Alzheimer's disease. And so when we look at her lifetime, the clues were all of there. She was small birth weight. She had gallstone, which was a, a result of liver disease. She had fatty liver with, she was wracked with pains in the belly that were not diagnosed for a couple of decades and so on. And when we met her, she was just in the diabetic range. Now she's lost 35, 40 pounds. All of that's gone away, and her chance of developing Alzheimer's, that thing we started with, is so much less. So this isn't a story about her blood sugar. This is about a number of uh, um, events that occur because she's uh, insulin uh, resistant. So I would also add, Lisa, that what's different about our approach is that we didn't just look at people through a medical prism. Because your metabolism is so profoundly affected by your your behavioral patterns and your environment, we looked at that if you're a very stressed out Wall Street trader, if you follow an orthodox kosher diet and you have to work within that, if you're a single mom who works and has to commute one hour each day, what are some micro changes that we could make that would help us correct the imbalances in your metabolism? So we, we get an extensive history of the person's family background. We do an assessment of their nutrition, of their you know, history of depression, etc., and we work within that framework. So you know this approach is called precision medicine because it's very, very personalized. I really love that. And you talk about epigenetics as well. Yes. So when this is a clearly a familial disorder, happens over and over and over. However, after spending billions of dollars and, and uh, British pounds and so on, the geneticists haven't really been able to put their finger on uh, a, a, a common gene. We have identified rare genes that cause um, these problems, but not a common one. So in our book, we, we go back to the extraordinary observation made in, during the Second World War in Holland where after the, the Nazi occupiers uh, rationed food because the Dutch were blowing up their trains, something like that. And the food deprivation was a certain period of time. So it discovered that by chance there were some pregnant women early in the uh, this uh, deprivation period that were pregnant and when their babies were born, they were not only a little smaller, these uh, babies were followed into the future. And these are the people who develop all of the ramifications of insulin resistance. They gained weight, they had high blood pressure, they got heart attacks and strokes and gout and so on. So that intrauterine experience then had determined an outcome throughout the person's, uh, the newborn's life. 
So how do we explain it? And the answer is, I think, that there must be nutritional changes in the expression of genes that have to do with insulin metabolism. And when those changes occur, epigenetic changes, they're permanent. And what's terrifying to us is that they then become familial. That is passed on. So it's not that the gene isn't working. It's silenced or their function has changed. That's what we think is happening. So if we go back even further, Lisa, and we look at the history of Homo sapiens, we know that nine-tenths of our history is in the Paleolithic era when there was a lot of feasting and fasting. And now there has been uh, biomarkers identified which there was an evolutionary adaptation which enabled people to store nutrition as fat rather than burn it as glucose as energy. And so when we have those underlying genes and you have a mother who's heavier, she's more likely to be insulin resistant and then her baby will be born with that condition. Now, you can make changes, right, That so you don't end up in that situation, even though your epigenetics kind of lay that path by your choices, and that's what you focus on, and amongst many other wonderful things. Exactly. So, our book is very much a story of hope, and it's based on the outcomes of thousands of people who've been able to make small changes you know, replace simple carbohydrates with complex ones or changes in their exercise patterns and see very dramatic improvements in their health and their sense of well-being. I do love in the book, you learn about so many different people. When you're talking about you have nutritional profiles, food, culture, and identity, you tell us about somebody named Colin. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, he was terrified of of becoming overweight. So he had very seriously restricted his his diet. So when he came to the clinic, right, he'd been discovered by his general practitioner to have an extremely low level of testosterone, Um, really low, unambiguously low. And so we're puzzling why that is and uh, eventually one day I saw him in the, on my desk and he was counting out uh, uh, nuts so I said what's going on here and he said well I eat 17 of those a day and I thought Lord you know he's so restricting his diet his body mass index had fallen to such a level but it turns out um, hormonally there's a regulation, a down regulation of his testosterone through his brain's pituitary gland. So what we did was to clear the nuts away and have him eat normally, and he got it. He was fortunately an intelligent uh, man. So he gained uh, 30 pounds, and his testosterone was not only normal, it was elevated. He hadn't actually made the connection between his poor diet. He came to see an endocrinologist for low testosterone. And it was Noel who made the connection 
that that was inhibiting his body function. You know, I think a lot of people feel like it's all about food. And yeah, it definitely is about food, but it's other things. Although I do like that in the book, you do have things like alternatives for bread and pasta, almond flour, spelt flour, sprouted Ezekiel bread. I remember for years, my husband would have those Ezekiel tortillas with almond butter on them, um, Indian buckwheat flour, black bean pasta, lentil pasta, chickpea pasta. I like that you say make sure these products contain 100% of the permitted ingredient with no added flours. A lot of times they sneak in some rice flour in there absolutely (laughs) you got to read your packages we have to make our patients real nutritional sleuths who can read all the fine print of everything they buy absolutely you also talk about vitamins and supplements i love this vitamins and supplements effective or snake oil let's start with a supplements most of the supplements available in your um in your pharmacy, have never been tested by the FDA. There's no requirement that they be meet specifications. There's usually no proof at all that they actually have done anything that they've obtained and very often don't necessarily have the ingredients either. So this is a serious deficiency. People blindly do it. And the one other thing that I uh, have a bit of a hobby horse at is that probiotics are a billion-dollar industry in the U.S., right? Everybody uh, takes them believing that how much good it does you. And I know of no evidence that lactobacillus, uh, which is usually used, is a- actually has any benefits at all. And further, it can't possibly live in your intestine. Like any other bacteria that we absorb, we kill it. However, eating a Randy Granny Smith apple is full of a complex carbohydrate that stimulates the good bacteria in our intestine. This is a prebiotic food, and that has great health implications. Oh, that's great. Now, what about people who say, well, instead of taking a probiotic, you just eat fermented foods like kimchi or sauerkraut? Do you think that's a good way to go? Absolutely. Very much so. Okay, so we need to get it from the food. And this brings me to the microbiome. Well, I think the problem with it is science, really. We've got a limitation in growing in a laboratory those bacteria. So we have to infer from rodents how it's really doing. You don't look like a rodent. I mean... Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, my daughter's obsessed with rodents. She'd be like, what? But they're so cute. So I think the total evidence is is pretty slim, but the microbiome can uh, generate uh, inflammatory substances, uh, especially cytokines. And this has all kinds of bad news as far as the body functioning is concerned. Whether, in fact, the microbiome has a lot to do with weight gain, I think the evidence, to my mind, is pretty slim. It's just, you know, it's one of those areas like gene therapy where everyone's projecting what they want to see. And I think Noel's point is that if you look at the scientific data, we're still a long way away from where we need to be. 
And I would also just like to add, especially when we're talking about cytokines coming out of this whole experience of the pandemic, we've become so painfully aware that the most vulnerable members of our societies, the ones that we depend on the most, have the most compromised metabolism. And so it's so essential that we educate people to find better solutions. I can just color that in a, a little bit. When somebody with COVID-19 gets seriously ill, a scientist talk about, or clinicians talk about a cytokine storm. So cytokine are part of the immune system and uh, they're overproduced to begin with in people with a lot of uh, belly fat, internal uh, abdominal fat, because that fat produces high levels of cytokine to begin with. So it's no surprise when they get the infection that these are the people at risk. So heavy, overweight people uh, with type 2 diabetes, not, type, not about blood sugar, it's about inf inflammation, these are the people who are more at serious risk of getting into trouble from the virus. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember seeing several months ago or maybe more that if you're obese, COVID's going to hit you harder. Exactly. That's one reason why countries like the U.S. and the U.K. where you have higher numbers of people with excess weight, why they have had such a high level of deaths related to COVID. Yeah, Boris Johnson in the UK, of course, got pretty seriously ill. And he learned that his obesity was uh, predisposing him to get so so sick. So he's, uh, the, in the UK, they've generated a great interest in people's weight um, because of this connection. In your uh, chapter, Nutritional Profiles, Food, Culture, and Identity, you write, food in all its dazzling and delectable forms is a leading actor, if occasionally one shrouded in mystery in each of the client stories we hear in our clinic. In that chapter, you talk chapter season you talk about viva vegans you talk about hunger stimulating foods that's where you shared about the alternatives i have to say i love your writing i i love that food and all its dazzling and delectable <laughs> forms and i think a lot of time it seems like people feel like they're eating the right things but maybe it's still not working for them right i mean you see that like oh i eat this and everyone says you should eat kale but maybe for you it's not the right thing and we have bio individuality and where does that come in so uh, you're absolutely right i actually just read a statistic that 80 percent of americans have said that they have got conflicting information about food and nutrition um and so we see a real role for the food industry to become champions of scientifically based, verifiable insights. There's so many foods that are considered superfoods, like beets, for example, you know, or coconut water, 
that are lethal for people with insulin resistance because of the high glycemic index. And the other thing on a more philosophical note, you know, when we think about our lives and the phases of our lives, it's often characterized by a changing relationship with food. And what we've tried to do in the book is to encourage people to think about food choices based on their metabolic profiles as something that they do for life. So there isn't this intense pressure that you've transgressed from your diet one day because we're looking at a lifelong outcome. We're not looking at 60 days. Yeah, I really like that you said that. Speaking of that, if you're looking at Emerald, for example, Emerald personalities have begun to show overt symptoms of hyperinsulinemia. These changes can be reversed and Emeralds can stop the advance of these symptoms before they reach a stage of disease. So let's take an Emerald personality, for example. What would you advise them uh, on food? So we would advise them to strictly limit simple carbohydrates. Now, we know that uh, it's not just in rice and pasta, but as you said earlier, even when you buy products that have traces of tapioca flour or traces of rice flour, that's harmful. So in general, we uh, are encourage people to have uh, breakfast with protein. We encourage small frequent meals rather than large infrequent meals. We encourage, uh, as far as food is concerned, a great emphasis on vegetables. And because we're learning more about the effects of fructose on the brain and how it affects cognition and so we uh, encourage berries and as Noel said granny smith apples but otherwise we limit the fruit intake and we don't count calories at all you know we think that's something that belongs to another century because if you look at the calories from instant oatmeal and steel cut oatmeals They're almost identical, but there's a huge difference in the responses they elicit in your glycemic level. Yeah, so exercise and sleep are also very important. You know, the average New Yorker doesn't sleep properly. There's a very lot of sleep disorders going on. So, you know, people in um, uh, high-pressure jobs maybe sleeping four or five uh, hours a night and wonder why they're overweight and feel tired all the time. And they may sleep 12 hours on Sunday. That's not making up for the deficit during the week. No, you can't. I, I'm, and everyone who listens to the show knows that like sleep is my religion. I'm in bed every night between 8.30 and 9, much to my 16-year-old daughter's chagrin, although she's usually asleep by 9.30. I'm very strict about sleep. And people just don't get it. They're like, why do you go to bed so early? What You know, if somebody's like, this was before COVID, you want to go out to dinner at 8? I'm like, no, I'll go out to dinner at 6, preferably 5. They're like, what do you, you know, the early bird special, make fun of me. Hey, make fun of me all you want, but I feel good. Sleep yeah. is key. Really it's so important. Yeah. So important. And exercise, too. 
It's huge. Just go out for a walk. I mean, I think people sometimes feel like it's overwhelming. What am I going to do? But you just have to move your body to get started. Yeah, exercise is is probably not uh, the major determinant in, in excessive weight gain. Sure. Almost always uh, diet. But for people who lose weight successfully, they're... Uh, they they lose resting energy expenditure, and so it needs to be kept up artificially because it may, the weight may come back if they don't. So this is one of the big misperceptions that you gain weight with a slow metabolism. In fact, it takes more energy for the body to support a larger frame. And Noel's point is, as you begin to lose those extra pounds, you have to burn that energy with exercise. And what we see is we have a number of patients that might work for the fire department or might work for the police, and sometimes they're asked to do overnight shifts. And that can have a profound effect on their health outcomes. So we know, for example, in experiments that have been done, that if you're sleep deprived, it changes your hunger patterns. It changes your glycemic response to food. Um, So it, it is very, very important. Now, going back to those personalities, the Ruby personality, that's the one where it's most complicated. Uh, Personalities have medical complications from their insulin resistance. Fear not, however, because they will in all likelihood immediately feel revived after making a few changes in their daily rituals and food choices. That's what I love so much about the work you do with that. It has hope and you're not blaming people. If people feel like they're going to go somewhere and they're trying to get help and then, you you know, you look them up and down and you're like, oh, my, you know, you, you see it in their face. You can see it in your face, but you're, you're so kind and you understand and you know the science. How would you say talk to somebody who's feeling just bad about themselves or overweight or how to talk to loved ones who are overweight that you want to help? We would say, first of all, that this is not your fault. It's something you've inherited from your family members. And there's a whole lot of things that we can do to to change the course of your metabolism. And even if you begin with one of those things, you'll begin to see results. So the important thing is we're not looking for drastic changes. We're looking for micro changes. And that may mean that you begin by walking for just half an hour and you gradually increase it by 15 minutes. It may mean that you replace the bread you buy with Uh, spelt, 100% spelt flour bread initially, Um, things like that. So the, the important thing is, as you so rightly said, and as we see in our clinic, even in the medical profession, people tend to judge their patients. They don't spend the time to explain what the solutions might be. And we need to offer science. So we love it when a patient comes and they've got 16 pages of internet stuff printed and they say, what about this and this and this? Because we feel our role is to give agency and empowerment to our readers, to be in charge of their health. Yeah, you definitely do. How do you approach a young person who's already obese without hurting their feelings, but helping them understand you don't want this to become like your lifelong situation. 
Well, you know, you need to approach that intellectually. So a lot of pediatricians might tell that mother, well, he'll grow out of it at puberty. And the data is that oh, virtually impossible. It doesn't happen, right? So you, you're not dealing with it until it's an even worse a problem. So it takes time one-on-one -on -one, to explain what insulin resistance is, that this is a genetic disorder, and for the rest of his life is going to be affected by not dealing with it now. So one practical suggestion might be to say, come and do this quiz in this book. And you know what these authors are saying is that coming from cavemen and women, some people have a very interesting genetic profile. And I wonder if the two of you have it. And if you do have it, here are some of the things that may happen and here's what you can do. So I think the more you gamify it in a way and make it more about science and rather than individuals, um, that, that might help. Because you know, here's the biggest thing, Lisa, it's, it's much more than the weight. It's the fact that an individual like this is on a fast track for depression, for dementia later in life. It's what's going to happen to the brain health that is as if not more important. Yeah, talk to us about the brain health because I was going to get to that. Well, a lot of our uh, patients, uh, avert adults uh, with insulin resistance, often talk about brain fog. We have a number of attorneys, for example, in their living with their brain and feel they're losing it. They just can't connect the dots fast enough, and a, you know, that's their livelihood. So we've had dramatic improvements in cognition. Um, by people doing the lifestyle changes that we uh, advise. So what we know is that the brain comprises 5% of the body mass, but it consumes 20% of the glucose in our body. And with insulin resistance, the glucose uptake in the brain gets affected. So they've done very interesting experiments looking at high resonance magnified images of brain synaptic activity on people on so-called normal or unrestricted diets versus people on ketogenic diets versus people who fasted for 12 hours. And what becomes very clear is that with simple carbohydrates, the, the brain synaptic activity is much slower. And we also know that as this progresses and brain tissue becomes glucose-starved, it begins to atrophy. So an extreme example is that in England, they called Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. And we also know that people with diabetes have a very high loss of executive function, memory, verbal skills, etc. So we believe that the whole area of cognition is far, it eclipses the weight aspect of the story. We're now dealing with aging populations in the world. 
right, where by 2080, 30% of the world's population will be over 60. And, and so we really need to focus on how we can keep our brain and our cognition robust and healthy and the brain so sensitive to what we eat. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you in t- on keto and people saying you should run on ketones versus glucose? Right. So the brain uses glucose in a fed state. So that's the only substrate. And the brain is um, an extraordinary organ, but it can't store energy. That's a real problem, right? So the, the body has various devices around that. So you store glucose for a day's fast. You don't eat for a day's fast. Then you have glucose stored as glycogen in the liver and so on, and then muscle and so on, but... After you get beyond the day, those resources are gone. So you don't die. You switch uh, metabolic substrate. Now it's ketones that are developed from fat stores. And ketones can completely uh, take the place of glucose as an energy substrate. Again, it can't be stored in the brain. It needs to be continually manufactured. Um, so a person can be given insulin um, experimentally to make a blood sugar of zero and have no symptoms as long as they have high enough level of ketones. Now, where does this fit in terms of uh, ketogenic diet? Ketogenic diet was making sure that you fasted for long enough to have fat breakdown that you could measure at ketones. There's also a problem with that. Ketones draw salt and water from the body, can lead to dangerous dehydration depending on the circumstances. So we, in general, think it's okay to miss a meal but we uh, uh, don't see, looking at the uh, data absolutely, and many, many trials have been done, a, a great benefit in terms of weight loss. Because you lose salt and water, you often get an early uh, uh, look at that looks like it's working. But it's salt and water got rid of fat. If you go on for three, uh, three to six months, you find there really isn't much difference at all. So we don't advocate uh, ketogenic diets in as a weight loss. And the other thing I would add is that what Noel just said about loss of fluid and muscle, that's also true of intermittent fasting, that they're finding that uh, the weight loss comes from the loss of muscle. Um, what we found with the Medicura program, where we encourage complex carbohydrates like legumes and beans, that that's far more sustainable because that those kinds of fibers stimulate satiety hormones, which give you a feeling that you have you know, replenished your appetite and had a satisfying meal, whereas 
in many instances, ketogenic diets are not sustainable over long periods of time and can cause health risks too, like kidney stones and things like that. Yeah, but it simply says that studies in the long term don't show that it works. So it's dehydration early, maybe loss of muscle, which is the very thing we don't want to lose. Absolutely. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I love beans, by the way. My big thing now that I love to make is I take, it's not that fancy, but it's good. I have quinoa and uh, pinto beans or black beans. And then I take a lot of cilantro, avocado, green onion, poblano pepper, jalapenos, tomato, and some olive oil, salt. And it's delicious. Please invite me to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so easy. I I am a fan of organic or grass-fed meat. I do like my meat. And I do eat a ton of vegetables. I'm big on healthy fat. I don't eat like processed grains or anything like that. It sounds like just a sensible way to eat, what you're talking about. And, you know, it's environmentally friendly. So we, we recommend having the freshest food, you know, from natural sources, because when it's in a package, you don't know what's gone into it. Just as when you go to a restaurant, you don't know what the ingredients are, whereas cooking at home. So we are great proponents of fresh vegetables, fresh meats and fruits, which are minimally cooked to retain their nutrients and environmentally friendly. No, I think that's great. Yeah, I don't eat that much fruit. I said I have to admit in the summer, oh gosh, I, I could I could eat a lot of watermelon. <laughs> but I'm a jade, so it's okay, right? It, it, you have to look at where you fit. And that's why you have to get this book. It is so good. It is called Maximize Your Metabolism, Noel McLaren, MD, Sunita Singh McLaren, Lifelong Solutions to Lose Weight, Regain Energy, and Prevent Disease. Again, your non-judgmental attitude is great. When I, when I got my master's in public health, one of the first things they taught us was to meet people where they are. And I love that and not have that judgment about it. You know, I remember I was hired to teach a class on on weight loss and fitness and everything at this clinic. And they had this manual and it was so negative. It was like, oh, are you fat? Yuck. And like, it was just super negative. And instead I'm like, hey, let's move our bodies and eat yummy, healthy food. And I added humor and it was part of the, it was funny because I had to try out. They were like looking at the way different people taught and I really changed up their whole thing. And I thought, I'm never going to get this job because I really veered away from their negative fat phobia thing. And I was just like, okay, so we're heavy. Let's let's figure this out, you know? And I think when you come from a place of love and acceptance, people are going to want to change than if they feel like they're being looked down upon. So I, I just love what you're doing. And the other thing I love is that you're into medical anthropology, Sunita, because my senior year of college... I took a medical anthropology class. Now, I was an anthropology major, but somehow it's my last semester of my senior year. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is what I want to do. And then college was over. But then that's why I went back and and studied public health. But I like the combination of the anthropology and and the medical anthropology. What got you interested in that? When, When did you first get interested in medical anthropology? And what is it for people who don't know? 
It's essentially looking at how behavior and cultural patterns influences people's notion of health and wellness. And uh, as we've said, if you look at most societies, there is a great preoccupation with being well and overcoming disease and people use totems and different types of good luck symbols for that. So I had begun a company which was a cultural advisory where we did leadership programs in West Africa and other kinds of assignments. And we ended up doing some field work in rural China and rural India on how to combine traditional Chinese medicine practices uh, and Ayurvedic practices with Western medicine to treat diabetes. So how do you work with people's belief systems and bring infuse that with new types of knowledge? And I found that as we worked together at the Medicura Clinic, that if you took the time to understand people's stories and became sensitive to their life experiences, their choices, their motivations, you could do help them achieve so much more, more quickly and more efficiently. Absolutely. Was there anything that we didn't touch on today that you wanted to make sure that we talked about before we go? This has been such a great conversation. I think one thing that's very important is that uh, highly manufactured, highly processed food um, gives us a rash, right? I mean, it's, it's terrible. And one way I often talk, tell my patients is I can remember the time where uh, Jenna had won a gold medal and he was on the, um, um, uh, the, on the um, packet that uh, cereal came in. And the idea was at that time, like this, this is a healthy thing to do. You you have to eat this garbage every day, and in fact, it's there's uh, it's disgraceful. Some of the uh, pro, you know cereal processed for our kids to eat, and with the guys that this is healthy food. I would just say for all your listeners that no matter where they are in terms of their metabolic profile, there is so much that they can do in a short period of time. We've seen with thousands of people at our clinic that you can turn things around in as little as six months. And so this is very much a story of giving people agency and empowerment and hope. And that's a hope for all your listeners. One more caveat I like is that everybody knows that the excess of sugar is bad. We've got a plethora of foods in the supermarket sugar-free. Sometimes that sugar-free is, is worse for your health than if there was sugar in it. And one of the reasons for that is that high fructose uh, corn syrup is often substituted or a sugar alcohol is. Yes, they taste sweet, but these things are worse than sugar. And the agave, right from the cactus plant, right, is full of fructose. 
Yeah, that's terrible. This is advertised as a sugar substitute. Well, it, it's clearly worse than sugar. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I've heard agave is really bad. Now, what about things like xylitol or stevia? Stevia is fine. Stevia, but not xylitol? Yeah, stevia is good. Uh, any old, it's a sugar. Oh, that's oil. right. That's the. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> when diabetics get to damage their bodies because they have continual high levels of sugar, we think that it's a sugar alcohol that's generated from the sugar called sorbitol that's mediating this uh, damage, maybe osmotically. And so imagine then we put sorbitol as a sugar substitute in food when we think that this is an important mediator of damage to diabetic people. So I think we've got a lot to learn, but I regard all these alcohols as potentially dangerous, although we need more uh, studies to validate uh, my prejudices. And we would say, finally, that for all your listeners, that the reason for them to mastermind their metabolism is for their brain health and their emotional health more than anything else, because that will determine their quality of life. You brought up emotional health. Talk to us a little bit about that. I think that's really important. So we, what we see with a lot of people who come to our clinic is this, it's sort of a cycle where they've gained unwanted weight because of undiagnosed insulin resistance. And very often that that same high level of insulin predisposes them to anxiety as children or depression. They then go and see a doctor who puts them on medication, which makes them blow up, you know, with the effects, the side effects of these medications. So what we've been able to do, you know, with very deliberately is a explain to them that these are correlated. And it's, again, because of an underlying genetic condition. It's not because of their life choices. And once you untangle it and they begin to eat food and regulate the insulin levels, they manage to, in many, many cases, we get weaned off their medication for depression. So... Uh, it's so important for parents to know very early on whether their child might be at risk because there's much that can be done just through the diet to prevent this trajectory from anxiety to depression to other complications. You two are incredible. The work you do is so great. Again, the book is Maximize Your Metabolism, Lifelong Solutions to Lose Weight, Regain Energy, and Prevent Disease. Noel McLaren, MD, and Sunita Singh McLaren. How do we learn about more about you, your clinic, and your awesome book? Um, you could go to the, the, the website, the Metacura website, and we plan to do a series of webinars for the general public. Uh, to help people understand their metabolic profile. So we hope that this is the start of our conversation. And thank you so much for inviting us to your program. And you asked the best questions. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you very much. Oh, I love the book. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. I hope you got as much out of the show as I did. I feel so lucky to talk to so many incredible people to help you live your healthiest life. So please rate, review, and subscribe and never miss an episode of Talk Healthy Today.